and you're, you're listening, listening to Dream Infringement. We did a good job saying that at the same time. We did. It was creepy, actually. <laughs> you're probably wondering what this show is all about. Yeah, well, let's let Weston tell us. Weston, you might be wondering, who's that? Well, I think he reveals who he is. I think he does. <laughs> Co-hosts, there were three, who hosted quite so merrily. One night, an idea they contrived, and into radio community, they dived. We like to tell stories and playing songs. We like to laugh and hope you laugh along. And that was their rich stories six years ago. Now I shall introduce the, ho- the hosts of the show. Bobby, who has an ace up his sleeve, the truly extrovert, extrovert among us, would you believe? Emily's, whose sweet voice can take you through time, she's a history's buff and true paradigm. <laughs> Jennifer, who dabbles in spreadsheets she like things arranged. She writes parodies and sometimes sings out of range. But don't worry, we're all a little off-key. That's the charm of the Dream Infringement 3. Who this might, who this is the speaker of verse you might be in question in. Bobby and Emily's firstborn, my name is Weston. And for the theme song, there shall be any doubt. Poems, prose, verse will be recited throughout. Yes, we've come together and dear for hosts and friends to talk of cabbages, kings, and where the sidewalk ends. Yes, this week it's Dream Infringement's Poetry Hour, and we are going to be reading some of our favorite poems, and we've outsourced to some of our friends and family to read some of their favorite poems. So that's what it is all about this week. And to start things off, we have a song by Dolly Parton called Life's Like Poetry. But life's like poetry And in my poem day Until now there's always been a missing line Poetry has been around for a while and I was going to go over some of the oldest poems on record. Um, the first is by Inheduana. She was the daughter of the famous King Saragon the Great of Akkad and appears to be the first named poet in human history. Uh, She lived circa 2285 BCE, and she was a high priestess of the goddess Inanna, aka Ishtar and Aphrodite. She is known primarily as the author of the Sumerian temple hymns, but the poem I'm going to read is one called Lament to the Spirit of War because it seemed appropriate for these current events. You hack everything down in battle god of war with your fierce wings you slice away the land and charge disguised as a raging storm growl as a roaring hurricane yell like a tempest yells 
thunder, rage, roar, and drum, expel evil winds. Your feet are filled with anxiety. On your lyre of moans, I hear your loud dirge scream. Like a fiery monster, you fill the land with poison. As thunder, you growl over the earth. Trees and bushes collapse before you. You are blood rushing down a mountain, spirit of hate, greed, and anger, dominator of heaven and earth. Your fire wafts over our land, riding on a beast with indomitable commands. You decide all fate. You triumph over all our rights. Who can explain why you go on so, that was my best attempt at a very angry Sumerian priestess from 4,000 years ago. The oldest love poem. I am not going to read on the radio, <laughs> but you can look it up later if you would like to. It is called The Love Song of Shu Sin, and it also belongs to the Sumerian era. Uh, it was part of a yearly ritual known as the sacred marriage. In this love song, a female speaker, Inanna, the goddess of love and fertility, expresses her love and desire in the form of erotic praises for the Sumer king Shusin. Hailing from ancient Mesopotamia! That's right, it's the Epic of Gilgamesh! One of the world's first works in the field of literature. It recites the story of a Sumerian king on a quest to find the secret to immortality. Gilgamesh was a cruel king and people were terrified of him. When the people of Uruk complained to the gods that a king should not be so terrible and horrible, the gods listened. They then told Aruru, the god of creation, that since she made Gilgamesh, she must also make someone strong enough to stand up to him. This led to the coming of Inkaidu, a man 100% covered in hair who liked to hang out with his gazelle friends until a certain lovely lady named Shamhat happened to catch his attention. This poem is not about that. It is kind of a character reference for Gilgamesh. Gilgamesh, the tall, magnificent, and terrible, who opened passes in the mountains, who dug wells on the slopes of the uplands, and crossed the ocean, the wide sea to the sunrise, who scoured the world ever searching for life, and reached through sheer force, Udanapishti the distant, who restored the cult centers destroyed by the deluge, and set in place for the people the rights of the cosmos. Who is there can rival his kingly standing, and say like Gilgamesh, it is I am the king. Gilgamesh was his name from the day he was born. Two-thirds of him god and one-third human. It was the lady of the gods drew the form of his figure, while his build was perfected by divine Nudamud. So that ends a very short, small overview of some of the most ancient poems on record. Um, all in all, I don't think they're that bad. Like, they definitely have a lot of imagery and, and a very direct and clear message to them. So I found that actually really interesting. It's amazing the amount of things that I learn and research 
because of this show when I put a story together. I think my small talk offerings have definitely grown larger. I don't know that it's things that people want to small talk about, but if you have space, I can fill it up with words. So that's something. And now you can too. All right. So now has come the time for us to introduce our friend Kirk hailing from the fabulous state of Washington. The evergreen state? Is that what they call it? Maybe. It sounds like they get more rain than we do, so. The land of a million trees. <laughs> and dewdrops? The land of a million trees and dewdrops. Maybe. So here's Kirk. Good news, a vignette in verse. When cares attack and life seems black, how sweet it is to pot a yak, or puncture hares and grizzly bears and others I could mention. But in my animals who's who, no name stands higher than the new, and each new new that comes in view receives my prompt attention. When Africa's sun is sinking low and shadows wander to and fro, and everywhere there's in the air a hush that's deep and solemn. Then is the time good men and true with view halloo pursue the new. The safest spot to put your shot is through the spinal column. To take the creature by surprise, we must adopt some rude disguise. Although deceit is never sweet and falsehoods don't attract us. So as with gun in hand you wait, remember to impersonate a tuft of grass a mountain pass, a copy, or a cactus. A brief suspense, and then at last, the waiting's over, the vigil passed. A careful aim, a spurt of flame, it's done, you've pulled the trigger. And one more new, so fair and frail, has handed in its dinner pail. The females are all rather small, the males are somewhat bigger. Next up, we have another volunteer, my very own mother. What? That's right. Charlene. This is a poem that I learned when I was in the fifth grade, so this has been many decades ago. The poem is by William Wordsworth, and it's called Daffodils. I wandered lonely as a cloud that floats on high o'er vales and hills, when all at once I saw a crowd, a host of golden daffodils, beside the lake beneath the trees, fluttering and dancing in the breeze. Continuous as the stars that shine and twinkle on the Milky Way, they stretched in never-ending line along the margin of a bay. Ten thousand saw I at a glance, tossing their heads in sprightly dance. The waves beside them danced, but they outdid the sparkling leaves in glee. A poet could not but be gay in such a jocund company. I gazed and gazed, but little thought what wealth the show to me had brought. For oft when on my couch I lie, in vacant or in pensive mood, they flash upon that inward eye, which is the bliss of solitude. 
and then my heart with pleasure fills and dances with the daffodils. Hi there, it's Bobby. I have some poems I'm going to share with you by a poet by the name of Ophelia Zepeda. She's actually a Tohono O'odham poet, which Tohono O'odham is a tribe that is specific to southern Arizona in the Tucson area, which is where I grew up. And a lot of her poems are really beautiful in that they capture the desperation for rain and water that are very unique to that particular area. And if you are familiar with Tucson, Arizona, uh, during the summer months, suddenly the heavens open up and there's a great deal of rain by way of monsoon season. And you don't know when it's going to happen. You know that it's going to happen in the summer, usually the hottest time of the year, which is like July, August, within those months. But you desperately want it, and you pray for it, and you wish for it, and you look for signs in the air that it's going to come. And I feel like Ophelia Zapella really captures, like I said, that desperation. So here are two poems by her that I'm going to read. The first one is entitled, It is Going to Rain. Someone said it is going to rain. I think it is not so, because I have not yet felt the earth and the way it holds still in anticipation. I think it is not so, because I have not yet felt the sky become heavy with moisture of preparation. I think it is not so, because I have not yet felt the winds move with their coolness. I think it is not so, because I have not yet inhaled the sweet, wet dirt the winds bring. So there is no truth that it will ring. This next poem is entitled, Pulling Down the Clouds. With my harvesting stick, I will stir the clouds. With dreams of distant noise disturbing his sleep, the smell of dirt, wet for the first time in what seems like months. The change in the molecules is sudden. They enter the nasal cavity. He contemplates that smell. What is that smell? It is rain. Rain somewhere out in the desert. Comforted in this knowledge, he turns over and continues to his sleep. Dreams of women with harvesting sticks raised towards the sky. The song that I chose to play is by an artist that dwells in Tucson, Arizona. His name is John Coinman. Fun fact, he was a music consultant on the movie Dances with Wolves. And he's also a member of Kevin Costner's band by the name of Kevin Costner and the Modern West. Here is John Coyneman with Struck by Lightning. When we 
This is Just to Say by William Carlos Williams. I have eaten the plums that were in the icebox and which you were probably saving for breakfast. Forgive me, they were delicious, so sweet and so cold. This song is by Camera Obscura. They took the poem by Robert Burns, A Red Red Rose, and set it to music. My love's like a red red rose that's newly sprung in June. Oh, my love's like the melody that's sweetly played in June. All right, I am sitting here with Weston. Hello. Go ahead. Hello, I'm uh, Weston. He is an avid reader, and he has a collection of Shel Silverstein poetry books. Yes, I'm more into Calvin and Hobbes, but I like Shel Silverstein as well. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the author of Calvin and Hobbes, did did he ever write any poems? Um, one time Calvin did a haiku, but that was pretty uh, kind of disturbing. (laughs) <laughs> we'll we'll save that for another show. Yep. All right, Weston. So you've got two poems to read for us this evening. What's up first? Lazy Jane. Lazy, 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 lazy Jane. She wants a drink of water, so she waits and waits and waits and waits and waits for it to rain. <laughs> That's funny. I like how Shel Silverstein incorporates art into his his poems. Yes, he does. Do you want to cr- take a crack at uh, describing how those what those words are doing on the page? Yes. So, um, Jane has her hair. It's kind of like on the side there, and um, she has her mouth open, and each letter is like each word is like lined into like like a like a straight square like my finger is right here (laughs) on top of the microphone so um yeah (laughs) it's like kind of like if you put your finger right up then it's kind of like the size of that that's pretty cool all right let's hear the next one weston the planet of mars on the planet of mars they have clothes just like ours and they have the same shoes and same laces and they have the same charms and same graces. And they have all the same heads and same faces, but not in the very same places. <laughs> oh my. Now this picture is interesting. Where is this Martian's head? Is on his buttocks, as they say in England. <laughs> yep, that's definitely, definitely not where we have our heads. <laughs> yep. Well, thank you, Weston. You're very welcome. I loved your poems. I love you, too. I first read this poem when I was 16. I had gotten a book on mental health disorders because I was just starting to have a lot of problems with anxiety and depression, and I didn't really know what was going on and 
the internet wasn't a thing, so it was really hard to find information. And they quoted this poem uh, under the heading of depersonalization. This is by Emily Dickinson, and it is, I felt a cleaving in my mind. I felt a cleaving in my mind, as if my brain had split. I tried to match it seam by seam, but could not make them fit. The thought behind I strove to join, unto the thought before, but sequence raveled out of reach, like balls upon a floor. Next up we have Vianne with an oldie but a goodie and some little known history about a very popular poem. Enjoy. My favorite poem is The Road Not Taken by Robert Frost. Two roads diverged in a yellow wood, and sorry I could not travel both and be one traveler. Long I stood and looked down one as far as I could to where it bent in the undergrowth. Then took the other as just as fair, and having perhaps the better claim because it was grassy and wanted wear, though as for that the passing there had warned them really about the same, and both that morning equally lay in leaves no step had trodden black. Oh, I kept the first for another day, yet knowing how way leads on to way, I doubted if I should ever come back. I shall be telling this with a sigh, somewhere ages and ages hence. Two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. I really love this poem, um, because when I was in high school, my English teacher explained that um, many misinterpret this poem as um, saying that we should make our own paths, not following everybody else, but taking the road less traveled. Well, interestingly enough, that's not what Robert Frost intended for this poem. He actually intended this as um, a joke <laughs> to a friend of his. Um, his last name was Thomas, I think. And whenever they would go on their country walks, Thomas would always complain about the road that they took or the, the path that they took. And almost wishing that he had t taken a different path. Um, so he, he wrote it as in a sense of um, crying about what could have been. And so it made me really like this poem because instead of, um, you know, being sad about what could have been, being happy about the choices that you have made. And also I love it because people take it way too seriously and it was intended as a joke. <laughs> Aw, thanks, Vianne. I didn't know that about that poem, and now I do. And now we can all chuckle together. We can all laugh our way to the poetry. Uh, no, yeah. Bank? The poetry <laughs> bank? Yep. Uh, all right, next we have another outsourced poem by my very own father. That's right. Here's Steve. Steve. I don't know if he wants his last name on the radio. I think it's the Steve. It's the Steve. 
the only one I acknowledge anyway. The artist formerly known as. The poem that I've selected to read is called Today We Have Naming of Parts by Henry Reed. Now, just to explain a little bit, the first part of each stanza has to do with parts of an Enfield rifle that the British Army used in World War II. But Henry Reed draws a contrast between how nature can go on in spite of war and attempts of war. So I'll let you analyze all that, but here's the poem. Today we have naming of parts. Today we have naming of parts. Yesterday we had daily cleaning, and tomorrow morning we shall have what to do after firing, but today, today we have naming of parts. Hoponica glistens like coral in all of the neighboring gardens, and today we have naming of parts. This is the lower sling swivel, and this is the upper sling swivel, whose use you will see of when you are given your slings, and this is the piling swivel, which in your case you have not got. The branches hold in the gardens their silent, eloquent gestures, which in our case we have not got. This is the safety catch, which is always released with an easy flick of the thumb. And please do not let me see anyone using his finger. You can do it quite easy if you have any strength in your thumb. The blossoms are fragile and motionless, never letting anyone see any of them using their finger. And this you can see is the bolt. The purpose of this is to open the breech as you see. We can slide it rapidly backwards and forwards. We call this easing the spring. And rapidly backwards and forwards, the early bees are assaulting and fumbling the flowers. They call it easing the spring. They call it easing the spring. It is perfectly easy if you have any strength in your thumb, like the bolt and the breech and the cocking piece and the point of balance, which in our case we have not got. And the almond blossom, silent in all of the gardens, and the bees going backwards and forwards. For today, we have naming of parts. Emily here, and when I was in my junior year of high school, I had a really fabulous English teacher, and she did a segment in our class all about poetry. I had always, up until that point, enjoyed some poetry, but a lot of it just kind of made me feel foolish because I didn't understand it. I felt like there was something everyone else was in on that I was not privy to when it came to some poems and it made me feel yeah kind of like a fool like I didn't want to admit that I didn't know what the poet was trying to say and so along with teaching us the fundamentals of poetry writing and all the tricks of the trade of of poets like metaphors and iambic pentameter and all those things um what she did that i really appreciated was she taught us to just enjoy a poem for the sake of enjoying it we didn't have to necessarily understand exactly what the poet was trying to get across but just the feeling it gave us and that was something i could get into because i'm a feelings kind of gal 
So this is a poem that I have loved since I was 17 and in Mrs. Chadwell's class. It's called Recuerdo, and it's by Edna St. Vincent Millay. We were very tired, we were very merry. We had gone back and forth all night on the ferry. It was bare and bright and smelled like a stable, but we looked into a fire, we leaned across a table. We lay on a hilltop underneath a moon, and the whistles kept blowing and the dawn came soon. We were very tired, we were very merry, we had gone back and forth all night on the ferry. And you ate an apple, and I ate a pear, from a dozen of each we had bought somewhere. And the sky went wane, and the wind came cold, and the sun rose dripping a bucket full of gold. We were very tired, we were very merry, we had gone back and forth all night on the ferry. We hailed good morrow, mother, to a shawl-covered head, and bought a morning paper, which neither of us read. And she wept, God bless you, for the apples and pears, and we gave her all our money but our subway fares. Broken Promise by Archibald McLeish That was by the door, leafy evening in the apple trees, and you would not forget this anymore. And even if you died, there would be these touchings remembered, and you would return from any bourne, from any shore, to find the evening in these leaves, to find my arms beside this door. I think, oh my, not now, Ophelia, there are not always, like a moon, rememberings afterward. I think there are, sometimes, a few strange stars upon the sky. Archibald McLeish was born in Glencoe, Illinois, in 1982. He later studied at Yale and Harvard Law School, where he was first in his class. Although he focused his studies on law, he also began writing poetry during this time. At the onset of World War I, McLeish volunteered as an ambulance driver, and later became a captain of field artillery. Upon returning home, he worked in Boston as a lawyer, but found that the position distracted him from his poetry. He resigned in 1923, on the day that he was promoted to partner in the firm. He then moved his family to France and began to focus on writing. About five years later, in 1928, he returned to America, where he began research for his epic poem, Conquistador. He won the Pulitzer Prize for his efforts in 1932. In 1939, President Roosevelt persuaded him to an accept an appointment as Librarian of Congress, a position he kept for five years. He thoroughly reorganized the library's administrative offices and established the library's series of poetry readings. In 1944, he was appointed Assistant Secretary of State for Cultural Affairs. After World War II, he became the first American member of the governing body of UNESCO and chaired the first UNESCO conference in Paris. In 1949, he retired from his political activism. He continued to write poetry, criticism, and stage, and screenplays to great acclaim. 
1965, he received an Academy Award for his work on the screenplay of The Eleanor Roosevelt Story. He died in April 1982 in Boston. Ancestral by Archibald McLeish The star dissolved in evening, the one star, the silently, and night, oh soon now, soon, and still the light now, and still now the large, relinquishing, and through the pools of blue, still, still the swallows, and a wind now, and the tree, gathering darkness. I was small, I lay beside my mother on the grass, and sleep came. Slow hooves and dripping with the dark, the velvet muzzles, the white feet that move in a dream water, and oh soon now soon, sleep and the night. I was not afraid, her hand lay over mine, her fingers knew darkness and sleep, the silent lands, the far, far off of morning, where I should awake. All right, Emily, so this is the tail end of the show. And don't worry, we're still, there's still poetry content that's coming your way. It's not all the way totally over. So, for the first time ever, I am going to recite a poem that I made up right now in real time that I am making up as I am speaking. So even I don't know what this poem is going to be about or how it will end or how it will start. Are you ready, Emily? Oh, I sure hope so. Okay, first I want you to pick a theme. Dogs. Dogs. Okay, now I want you to uh, pick a, a filling. What kind, of, what kind of filling is this poem going to evoke? Mm, frustration. Frustration. Okay, that's great. Um, and uh, do you want it to rhyme or not? Just say maybe sometimes. <laughs> sometimes rhyme, sometimes Sometimes don't. rhyme, sometimes don't rhyme okay that's perfect i could do that i could do that so a little bit of both okay that's great okay so you want the poem to be about a dog you want it to sometimes rhyme but sometimes not rhyme and uh you want it to frustrate you want it to evoke a feeling of frustration yes okay this this poem is entitled a dog at war with my heart A dog at war with my heart is what you have become. Why have you become a dog at war with my heart? For you see, every night when you lie your jowled face down upon my wooden floors, you start to dream. And in my dreams, and during my dreams, you kick and you bark, and you chase, and you run. What are you chasing? What are you barking at? 
What do you run towards? It is the rabbit in your dreams. And you, you, my dog, you are the bane of my existence. One day I found you, and one day I will lose you. I will be sad on that day, but the road that leads to that day is paved with frustration. And scene. Oh, wow. That was pretty good. I hope we don't offend dog lovers. As soon as I said dogs, I was like, oh boy. And then I said frustration. That's okay. Blame me, listeners. It's all my fault. Don't they call those, um, they call that like like a Siegfried slip or something like that right Oh, a freudian slip yeah that's it it should I'm, be called siegfried um, slip i don't because it sounds like a dance is. do the siegfried slip 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 do the siegfried slip 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 just like we used to do okay <laughs> all right so so now we've definitely arrived at the end of our show say it isn't so no no it can't end, it can't end. i know i back back you crazy listeners you know who you are Well, it has come to an end, and before you start knocking down our doors and saying, we want more, we want more, and chanting outside of the studio, we're going to be back next Monday. Don't worry. Relax. Take it easy. But following us, you have another fantastic show, equally or possibly more fantastic than our show. I don't know. It depends on who you ask. And that show is called World Music. And the host is Sophia Blanton. Yes, this is all accurate information. I have to have Emily sometimes chime in to say that I'm telling the truth and not lying to you listeners. (laughs) She has a great show. We listen to it every Monday after our show. Yeah, because we listen to our show. And then you know what we do? We don't change the channel. That's that's it. We just don't turn the dial. We don't mess with it. We keep listening. Yeah. If I reach towards the radio just by habit, Emily slaps my hand away and she says, no, it's Sophia Blanton producing world music. That's right. Hi, Sophia. <laughs> so we'll leave you with Sophia. And until next week, sayonara. That's right. And to play you out, we have a song called Poetry in Motion by Johnny Tillotson. Poetry in Motion. <laughs>